Hello, my friend, and welcome or welcome back to the Live Label Free podcast. You may or may not have listened to a previous podcast episode on this channel titled How Treatment Made My Eating Disorder Worse, in which I talk about the dark side of eating disorder treatment, especially for autistic people. Now, if you've listened to that episode, you know that it was originally recorded and published on the Eating Disorders Neurodiversity Australia Edna podcast, and I was interviewed by today's guest, Lawrence. Ever since we connected, Lawrence and I have been trying to find a date to record this podcast, so I am so excited and grateful to finally be sharing our chat with you today. In fact, we had so much to talk about that this is part one of a two-part episode series all about the lived experience connection of autism and eating disorders. Before we dive in, allow me to share a brief introduction to Lawrence. Lawrence, pronouns she, they, is a proudly neurodivergent, ADHD, and queer neurodiversity and mental health advocate. They have lived experience of a restrictive eating disorder, specifically anorexia or atypical anorexia. Lawrence completed a Bachelor of Psychological Science and a Master of Philosophy in Gender Studies. She is now undertaking a PhD which investigates eating disorders in the context of neurodivergence. Lawrence is the chair and research lead of the not-for-profit organization Eating Disorders Neurodiversity Australia, EDNA, which focuses on increasing awareness about the intersectionality of eating disorders and neurodivergence and also promotes neurodiversity-affirming eating disorder care. Now, without further ado, let's dive into today's episode with Lawrence. Welcome to Live Label Free, the podcast, where you'll learn to let go of limiting labels and embrace your unique brain. As my mom says so beautifully in her song, which is why on this podcast, you'll learn the scientific links between neurodiversity and eating disorders, giving you a deeper understanding of how you can face your fears and become truly free. Together, you and me, we will keep putting one foot in front of the other. Welcome, Lawrence. Thank you so much for coming on the Live Label Free podcast. How are you doing today? Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and I'll talk about my and share my lived experience, I guess. Yeah. Well, speaking of lived experience, who are you and what is your story? So my name is uh, Laurence and I'm originally from Brussels in Belgium, the best place for years in chocolates. <laughs> um, so my dad is Belgian. My mother's from South Africa. Um, and I don't know if people can tell from the accent I have, but my native language is French. Um, I, however, uh, spent lots of time overseas from Belgium. Um, ever since I graduated high school, I just couldn't stay at the same place all the time. So I lived in Paris, in, um, the UK, London, and then South in Bath. And then I went to the US. I also worked on cruise ships. Um, now I'm in Australia and I'm doing a PhD. Uh, at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. 
and I investigate eating disorders in the context of neurodivergence. Very so cool. it's been quite an adventure. I've I've, I've changed like professions and careers and study uh, types more than I can count. So yeah, I guess that's I, the ADHD side of me. <laughs> I think, I mean, I certainly resonate with that and I'm sure many autistic people do. Um, And I often describe myself as just multi-passionate because there's so much that I think I can be good at if I want to be good at it. Um, And I think, you know, that's what makes it hard for us autistic people to like, often tap into the hyper-focus because we want to hyper-focus on everything. <laughs> um, and I mean, yeah, it's it's funny because I've moved around a lot too. I mean, I lived in Boston and the Netherlands and then moved back to Boston. I lived in San Francisco and then in North Carolina. And often people are like, I thought you hated change. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like, I like change as long as it's been initiated by me. <laughs> um, but if someone else tells exactly. me to change, then I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, speaking of, you know, neurodivergence and multi-passionatism and um, all of that, what is your experience with neurodivergence? So, I mean, it's not until I was about 30 uh, that I realized I was neurodivergent. And then I had like a um, laid back my entire life. <laughs> Uh, as as we would watch a movie and realized, oh my God, this is neurodivergence. This is neurodivergence. This is how would this possibly be missed by everybody? So I'm gonna like give a snapshot of what I feel is related to neurodivergence in my childhood. Yeah. So essentially, as a child, I was really shy, introverted. But if you engage me on a topic that I was super passionate about. <laughs> I would info dump you until you died. Like you would have to pay me to shut up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Literally. Um, so like this contrast was very like getting people off guard because they, they thought I was shy and introverted, but then you engage me on something I was passionate about. I would stand my grounds. Like I had strong opinions and then I would yeah. not let go. Uh, but like most of the time I was really, really shy. So I think people were confused about where that came from but now that I know I'm autistic I just look at it like yep yeah, info dumping that's it no yeah. like justice sensitivity and things like that um another thing is like I'm extremely curious um yes I think a lot of people autistic people can relate to that like asking relentlessly my parents why how what about yeah. like, and what I mean, if and if making I may... theories and connections yeah. and yeah yeah, and if I may add on to that, I feel like autistic people, we want answers to like life's deepest questions often. Um, and I think that's what makes us, you know, wise beyond our years. Like when I was like a little kid, it was always, wow, she's so mature. You know, I could easily talk to people that were triple, quadruple, like, how do you say the fifth time, like way older than me. Like I would just like talk to them yeah, about like- same deep topics and because we don't like the small talk and and I indeed ask like why is this this way like and I'd I remember when I was 10 I was reading a book about like the um the etiology of cancer when I was 10 and we had to write a book report and and I was like yep I'm gonna write a book report about this cancer book <laughs> and I remember my my teacher being like shouldn't you select something more age appropriate? Because everyone was reading like Harry Potter and, you know, <laughs> the, the, the little kid books. And um, and I was like, no, no, no. But I really am fascinated by this. Like, we need to have a deeper understanding of the science behind this. And he was like, okay, Olivia, sure. <laughs> um, And now looking back, you know, when you 
understand like you autistic it's like all of that makes sense now <laughs> um so yeah just wanted to share that yeah i can totally relate because like when i was a kid i was writing poetry from a very early age and i was writing poetry about like very existential questions and political yeah. things and i was like what's the meaning of life and yes. stuff like that and i was pretty obscure and i was reading I was actually going into my my big brother's room and he was into philosophy and things like that because he's much older than me. And I would like not steal, but like borrow his book without like his permission. <laughs> yeah, and the philosophy. Then, like, it's, it was, I'm super into I know. That, yeah. And then I would talk about it at school and people were like, what the hell? You're, What's you're wrong with you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I was I was bored in, in, in school with like people my age and that. I was seeking connections with people much, much older than me all the time. But I think yeah. that's also a connection with giftedness, um, as well as being autistic and having special interests. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I can relate to neurodivergence from childhood is probably like most autistic people can relate to it is strong reactions to um like sensation, sensory, sensory issues. Um, so I think that like my sensory modality that is the most heightened or where I'm the most hypersensitive is like audition, so hearing. And I have like very vivid memories from childhood, such as like my dad had a motorbike called a Harley Davidson. I don't know if people yeah. know that <laughs> brand, but it's yeah. extremely loud and he was mm -hmm. obsessed with them. And so every time he was starting it, I had major meltdowns. I would like yeah. scream, um, scratch myself and punch my punch punch myself in the face, bang my head against the wall, or just like um bite myself, especially my arms until I bled. It was really, really, really bad. And another trigger I think is balloons popping um or exploding. Like, you know, when you're in a birthday party and people yeah. have balloons everywhere and then there's one that it's not. For me, it feels like I'm being, like I'm being poked or stabbed in the eye with an ice pick. That's how it feels to hear that noise. When you said um, that, so I would have said, major yeah. meltdowns as well. When you said that about the ice pick, it actually <laughs> reminds me of like a lobotomy. <laughs> you know how they used to do that, yeah. um, and they did yeah. that to a lot of autistic people. Like I've been reading about they it. They did. Um, like Rosemary, and mostly women. Yeah, like Rosemary 75 Kennedy. Seventy-five percent of them were women. Yeah, like Rosemary Kennedy, I've I've just I've been reading a book about um uh how do you say it? I know the Dutch word devang, which is like force in in psychiatry, coercion, coercion, coercion yeah. in yeah. like yeah. psychiatry. Um I'm reading a book about that and it's all about the history of coercion in the psychiatry with like um, you know, locking people up in the isolation cells yeah. and um just like and uh, how it's it's very like parallel he i mean psychiatry runs a parallel path to the carceral system so the prison system exactly yeah exactly they, and they they serve somehow single roles but yeah, yeah, yeah locking people out that are inconvenient to society yeah exactly and i've been like reading about the history of lobotomy and how like a lot of autistic people and like neurodivergent people like also including schizophrenia and bipolar they would get lobotomies and so I then developed this super obsession oh I want to learn everything about lobotomy <laughs> and it's like morbid but like it's just really fascinating to me um and I discovered that one of the Kennedy children um Rosemary Kennedy she had a very traumatic birth she was likely autistic she had a lot of neurodevelopmental delays she was lobotomized when she was 23 and after that you know she couldn't walk she couldn't talk and it's now I'm just like really 
I know it's such a side tangent, but it's just like, I think it just goes to show how, you know, neurodivergence and just neurodevelopmental differences, how these were so maltreated and honestly still today uh, invalidated. Of course, we don't have lobotomies and this kind of stuff, but we have yeah, other but they do horrible mechanisms. Therapy. Yeah, yeah, they do electroconvulsive therapy, which is, I mean, it's not the same, obviously, but yeah. I mean, the science behind it is maybe at best. It's it's horrible. Yeah, it is horrible. Um, so yeah, coming back to your story, sorry for the interruption. <laughs> but I, I wanted to mention that, you know, I mean today everybody's like, yeah, CBT, evidence based. Yeah, DBT, evidence based. Oh this my is evidence God. based. But evidence it's based. it's worth mentioning that lobotomy was thought of at the time as, as evidence. evidence so yeah. I mean, we need to be critical of what the evidence means. <laughs> Yes, I love that you brought this up um, because like a lot of the, I write about this in my book, Rainbow Girl, about how FBT, family-based therapy, you know, where the parents take over the child's food, evidence-based. Well, I mean, if you look at this evidence, it's so biased. Like they only look at for the small majority of people for who it did work. Oh, evidence-based. And I'm like, you totally excluding the majority of people for who it didn't work because they're not part of the evidence you want to see. Um, so exactly, yeah. thank you. That's <laughs> evidence based in mental health research one on one. That summarizes pretty much what is wrong with research in mental health. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They they see what they want to see and they ignore what they don't. Confirmation bias at its finest. <laughs> yeah, and publication bias only. Like if if you're a researcher and you have financial interests that you don't declare about proving that FBT works and you do a study and the findings show that it doesn't work then you're not going to publish it so right. only I mean what it what gets published is essentially what serves the researcher's agenda which is it works so all the studies that were undertaken that shows it doesn't work are not published so nobody knows about them so when every time somebody looks at the research and sees only what has been published they're like oh the research yeah. so far shows it works but they like they completely ignore that there are probably millions of research papers that show it doesn't but haven't I, been published. <laughs> I love that because I think this is especially relevant to the research shows on autism and eating disorders. Because if you look at the very scarce studies done on autism and eating disorders, it's all done on stereotypical white women with access to treatment who fit the stereotype for very thin anorexic and i'm like what about you know male not only men but like members of the lgbtq community which i mean if anyone is part of the community or has engaged with this community knows that autism and eating disorders are much more common in this community so if we're excluding this huge group of people how can this statistic of like one in four people with anorexia is also autistic it's just like it's so unreliable because that's maybe representing 0.001% of the population. Exactly. And like gender diverse people like myself or my colleague Anna at Edna or uh, like uh, women um, are oftentimes misdiagnosed with yeah. um, other disorders, especially yeah. uh, borderline personality disorder, which um, I think I've expressed how I feel about this diagnosis uh, yeah. at length in the report that we published earlier this year. Um, yeah, I was almost so, diagnosed yeah, with I mean, borderline before I was uh, yeah. doing my eating disorder me, before yeah. anyone knew about autism. Um, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. 
<laughs> how ridiculous that diagnosis is. So yeah, I mean, we, we make those statistics based on the fact that um, without realizing, sorry, I mean, without realizing that like, most people are misdiagnosed in the first place. So those statistics are probably higher if you consider much all higher, those issues with diagnosis. Yeah. Also, most diagnostic like criteria or diagnostic tools for diagnosing autism are biased because they were they were validated on white boys. Yeah. But they miss women, gender diverse people. Yeah. It's it's sad, but I mean that's why people like us are here <laughs> to change that. So I'm gonna go on with my experience. Um yes, please. <laughs> so with the the hearing is yeah. So I struggled uh, immensely with hearing sensory mm -hmm. sensitivity in that regards. Um, I also have issues with being touched. Um, I hate when people are in my like safe space, like safe environment. There's like circle around me where I hate people being in there unless they're invited or uh, it's like they ask permission first. So I know mm -hmm. like, yeah. Um, so I struggle with like public transportation, especially during busy hours i just cannot cope like gravel walk even if it's hours or take an uber or whatever but yeah public transportation is big no mm -hmm. um i also experienced struggle with speech uh which is a big red flag for autism that everybody missed in my life yeah is, same. um i yeah i experienced not necessarily like in the form of apraxia like i don't have apraxia which um oftentimes co cure with autism um and may cause um speech disability but for me it's more like sometimes i can speak and sometimes i can't and when i can't it's usually caused because i am overwhelmed by the sensory environments or and i'm extremely anxious emotionally yeah you don't so, feel example, safe you don't feel safe yeah exactly yeah so my first year at school i couldn't I couldn't talk and um people thought i think I was somehow intellectually disabled because the way they speak to me, because people think that if you cannot talk, that you means you cannot think. Right. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. And so they would speak to me like very slowly and very loud, like, you know, yeah. without asking me like, you know, do you want to write something? Maybe do you want to express yourself with sign language? They didn't give me options. So they just Dang. assumed that I couldn't speak. So I didn't have anything to say. And so they could speak over me, which was pretty traumatic, I think. Yeah, definitely. And um, I, I would have like um, issues with speaking in loud environments with my parents. So if I was at the restaurant with them um and it was very loud lots of people around i was very anxious um and then the waiters or the waitress would come to me and ask me and that i was a stranger i was very socially anxious already at that time and so a stranger asking me something in an environment i didn't feel safe because of sensory overwhelm it was that was just too much so i had either had meltdowns mm -hmm. um i tried to abscond so i tried to run away and yeah uh, which was dramatic or i would just point the items I wanted on the menu to my parents, mm -hmm. but not to the waiter because I don't speak to strangers. <laughs> so yeah, that's another like anecdote I can give. Um, also at school, I was the, the weird child uh, that was sitting at the very back of the class all the time. And I was zoning out and daydreaming, looking at the window all day. Uh -huh. And um, I don't think I ever really paid full attention to class, but I still had passing grades. 
even yeah. though I would like forget to do homework and essentially forget to study or knew I had to study, but then would leave it to the last minute to feel the pressure of doing it. And then I would do it like overnight or something. And then I would still have best grades. Um, it's weird. I'm, I'm um, very the but same. I realized later on it's giftedness. Yeah, That's doing, why I passed. I'm very the same. And I think that has to do with like the, the independence and the autonomy part of neurodivergence or autism in specific mm -hmm. specifically because like for me too I could never absorb information in the class because the class was too overstimulating for me the teacher would you know lecture us and I would be so fucking bored that I'd be like I'm just gonna zone out I'm gonna think about my own things during my eating disorder yeah. I would sit at the back of the class and I would just look up pictures of food the whole time yeah. <laughs> um but but when I you know had yeah. to do the test or you know had to complete an assignment it was like hyper focus mode like I would like lock myself up in my room in like complete silence and just like study yep. and like learn everything. And um, I don't know if you relate to this, but my sister who has ADHD, not autistic, and my other sister who I'm sure is you neurodivergent know, in some capacity, but I can't pin down what yet. Um, they can both study um or like do homework while listening to music, and I can't do that. I like can't. I need complete silence. It's not possible. Was, it was oh, yeah. always. Yeah, it was always the joke at home when I still lived at home. Like, oh, there's Livia, like, doing her math homework in, like, complete silence. Like, so boring. But it's like, I don't understand how you can have input and then output. I just feel like it just doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. Not either. Like, if there is the slightest distraction, yeah. I just, I feel rage. When I'm really in hyper-focus mode, I cannot tolerate anything. Right. And I, th I think it's I get because really angry. it's potential, like if you look at it from, you know, the perspective of safety again, which I believe it always comes back to safety. Um, it's like mm -hmm. sounds like sudden sounds that you don't have control over. Those are all potential threats in the end. So I think being hyper aware and hyper alert when these sounds come in, it's like oh, danger. We need to protect ourselves. Um, of course, that's just my evolutionary yeah. theory that I don't have yeah. any evidence basedness for that. Um, but it's just an observation I've made for myself. Um, and I, I think it does make sense because as autistic people born into a neurotypical world, I mean, we are constantly not safe. Like if you look at it simply. Have you listened to my free audio training yet? If not, you have got to get your booty over to my website right now and download the audio training, Three Steps to Recovery from an Eating Disorder as an Autistic Person. If there is one question I get asked the most when it comes to autism and eating disorders, it's whether or not I believe it's harder for an autistic person to recover from an eating disorder. The fact that this is such a common question is really no surprise as autistic traits are often the root cause of the disordered eating behaviors. I believe my own eating disorder was simply a manifestation of my autism. Obsessive interests, the need for predictability and routine, difficulty with change, being sensitive. As soon as you mix food and exercise into this autistic assemblage of traits, it's literally a recipe for an eating disorder. So then how does an autistic individual approach recovery from an eating disorder? Well, that is exactly what you will learn in my free audio training. 
while listening, you'll be guided through three simple steps to give you the clarity and confidence you need to use your autism to your advantage in recovery. It's like having a private coaching session with me on demand. To listen to the free training, all you have to do is head over to livelabelfree.com forward slash free dash audio training and you'll be on your way to learning the skills to fully recover from an eating disorder as an autistic person. Achieving a state of full recovery from an eating disorder will be a different journey than for someone who is not autistic but that doesn't mean it has to be harder. I did it which means you can too. Now let's get back to today's episode. And so another anecdote is that I I was deeply passionate, obviously, about things I cared about, which is now referred to as special interests. Mm-hmm. And I just barely passed topics at school that I didn't care about. But when the teacher made a mistake, a slight mistake um, in a topic I was deeply interested about, obviously, which I had read all the books in the planet about, <laughs> um, yeah. and I would call them out like, Hey, I like I like when things are correct and fair. When yeah. the teacher makes a mistake, then I I'm shy. But if you're in, making a mistake on a topic that I'm passionate about, I will tell you. I don't care if I'm shy <laughs> yes, anymore. I'll put you in your place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so sometimes I like in, uh, the teachers from the classes I really loved. I would raise my hands like <laughs> every two minutes. Yeah. Um, but then in classes where I just in I would stare at the window all day and not listen. So I think, I mean, I read about this lately and I think it's called the spiky profile, mm. um, which I can totally relate to. So essentially autistic people have like really spiky profile of they excel beyond measure at some areas where they specialize in because they're intrinsically motivated and then other they just cannot care so they barely they barely pass and that yeah. creates some form of a spiky profile that's cool and yeah weird isn't it <laughs> that nobody well, saw that yeah. coming when I was no, there yeah that was for me actually funny enough I I love mathematics still do I mean mm-hmm. solving algebraic equations was like my favorite hobby in school and people would laugh at me because I'd I'd just be doing my homework and I'd be like so into it and they'd be like what the fuck are you doing <laughs> um I loved mathematics I mean I always scored like the best grades. Um, I was also very good in, in French, funny enough. Um, I was the only one hey, that bonjour. read the French books because <laughs> um, I loved it. And I think, you know, already being bilingual in Dutch and English, I think that definitely helped because there were a lot of French words that there's either a Dutch or an English word that kind of looks like, seems like it. Um, like the word canel, uh, cinnamon. Um <laughs> In Dutch, it's canel. So when our French teacher asks, like, who knows what canel means? I was the only one who knew because I was like, canel, canel, sounds like canel. So it's cinnamon um, or like, yeah. yeah. So um, those two subjects I excelled at. But then if you asked me about like economics, like I barely passed. Like I had to do the redo on the economics test like three times because I, I just, I found it so boring. And I think... When I find when I'm not interested in something, I cannot I cannot learn it. It just it it won't go in. So yeah, my brain will like you know when you try to save something on your computer and it it shows error four or four yeah. file not found. That's my brain. Yes, I love that. 
Yeah. It's it's totally that, but for me it was actually the opposite. I hated mathematics. Um, but I loved literature and like mythology and history and archaeology and mm-hmm. so I had like very bad grades or passing grades in maths. But Funny. then I had like hundred percent in all the classes I was interested in, which yeah. was really weird. But at some point we had like physics classes. Mm-hmm. And I became obsessed with the um, periodic table of elements. And I learned it by heart. Me too. I I was fascinated. <laughs> also, like, in, like, who discovered them. And, like, yeah, it was. And that's why I actually love that, you know, the the um, autistic symbol. Uh, yeah. And the periodic autistic table. symbol is gold, which is, of course, on the periodic yeah. table. And you. Yeah. 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 yeah pretty cool isn't it yeah it is, I, it I, is. I I know very few people who actually as, as kids were obsessed enough to learn it by heart I'm not sure if I learned so it by really heart cool. um I did always learn like the when we were learning French grammar like the avoir conjugations and stuff I would learn all of those like I would like stamp the table in my head right um it was funny because like I I had a really hard time like actually applying it and like using it in a sentence Mm -hmm. but like the tables of I would just have them completely memorized so on the test it would just be like okay what's that spot in the table copy paste (laughs) that was kind of how my brain worked um like conversationally I was like but that was part of you know the beautism I think like I couldn't like all the conversation tests in French I was just like I, I just couldn't talk. I just couldn't say anything. My French teacher would be like, Livia, you know this so well. You always get such good grades on your test. Like, why can't you talk? Um, but I was like, it's not that I don't know it. It's just like a completely different situation that I felt threatened, yeah. I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah. I think that was probably for you a big red flag for like being autistic. Absolutely. We're not white boys. We cannot be diagnosed with it, can of we? Of course, of course. We're too smart to be autistic, right? Yeah. Right. You have friends. You you have empathy. Oh, but it's not. It's not you. You cannot yeah. be autistic. You have. Oh my god. Oh. Anyway, let's not talk about that because that's going to be another hour of speech. <laughs> the other thing that was a red flag for my me being autistic is I need time alone so much to recharge my batteries. Um, if I don't have like my my necessary time alone per day or two days per week alone um then i can have meltdowns over it so it's not just because of the sensory sometimes it's just socializing can can be so daunting and challenging for me that it exhausts me to the point where i have meltdowns eventually after a while Mm -hmm. so i need time alone but then people misrepresent and misunderstand my need to be alone as i don't like them or I don't care about them as much and has nothing to do with that. So like family members and close friends, um, I care about them deeply and I love them deeply, but I still need my time alone. And it's not a reflection of how much I care about them being alone. Um, And oftentimes I also like to be in people's company in the same room, Mm -hmm. but us doing completely different things on our own and in silence. Um, I I just I cannot explain that. I think it's like some form of parallel play. Um, but I need I need that to function. Um and yeah, I think there are lots of misrepresentations, misunderstandings about like being alone, um, loneliness, aloneness. I don't think they mean the same thing, such as that loneliness is felt as as a form of distress associated with being alone, whereas aloneness is I see it as 
peaceful. Like it brings me peace and solitude brings me peace. But yeah, I think people mis misrepresent them. I love that distinction. Um, I deeply resonate with that because yeah. <laughs> I'm often asked too, because I live alone. I mean, I work from home. I barely see people. I mean, I go outside for walks and go to the grocery store. Same. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Um, and I often get asked like, don't you get so lonely? And it's like, no, like I may live alone, but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm lonely. Um, like there's a difference, exactly. definitely. Um, yeah. but at the same time, like I still need connection. Like, like I still need to talk to people. But like in probably in an in my own degree, terms, yes, and to a degree that's much less than what most people would yeah. consider like appropriate social interaction. Like today, I'm talking to you, and later today, I'm talking to one of my clients, and I'm like, that is perfect socializing for That's one day <laughs> yeah yeah that'll probably be too much for me <laughs> depending on the context sometimes yeah. yes. sometimes I'm, my window is more i have more margin for self-regulation sometimes less it depends to see um so we are coming to the point where i realize i'm autistic and i was around 2019 um so essentially i was i was starting to be interested um i was looking into a future phd topic mm -hmm. so i thought i have lived experience of an eating disorder i might as well just look into eating disorder and i looked into yeah. it and i came across the connection between autism and eating disorders and i started looking into autism research and i'm like oh shit that's me um yeah. <laughs> so i mean i read more and more and more and um so like hundreds of articles like even thousands of articles and books I read about autism I was like okay that's it that's me it makes sense it's my life I relate to it 100% and I uh, went to my psychiatrist and I shared all the research uh summarized all the research and uh, I told her like this is me and there's no other way to explain my life story than this and at first she was a bit like reluctant to accept or agree and then we had more chats about it he remained open-minded, which I'm deeply appreciative of. And I guess we came to the conclusion that this was probably um, the most fitting um, kind of diagnosis for me yeah. or condition. Or I see it more as a form of neurodivergence, but I understand that people have different uh, ways of calling it. I call yeah. autism um, a difference, a neurodivergence. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's when I finally made sense of my entire existence, I guess, in some way. It was, it was, it was quite an um, emotional roller coaster to actually realize I was autistic because it was kind of like the knowledge I needed to um, understand myself fully. So it brought a lot of relief in terms of self-compassion because the mm -hmm. things I was struggling with and couldn't understand why finally there was there was something to explain it and I didn't feel as though I was to punish myself for those because I was disabled and it's fine to be disabled and you don't have to be perfect you can just be disabled and you are still you still have value as a human even at this, as a disabled person and you don't mean less in any way and I think that was start of my journey towards recovery which obviously takes a long time thank you so much for sharing all of that lawrence um i mean the experience of no divergence is definitely i feel like always a very <laughs> bumpy ride of discovery and um i think when like you said when you do discover like i am no divergent it just 
all it helps you to become more compassionate for yourself and i think to give yourself permission to exist and be the way you are without labeling it as weird um and just seeing it as different um but of course you know because no divergence isn't necessarily always accepted in a great way in our society i we mask it, right? And um, as you've said before to me in earlier conversations is that the eat an eating disorder is a form of autistic masking. So kind of getting into that, um, can you share with our audience, what is your experience with eating disorders? So, I mean, in hindsight, I think I had issues with eating um, from a very early age um, to the point where I don't even know where it started or when it started because at the time I didn't understand the differences between my new divergence, my new divergent like identity and my support needs as a new divergent person and then the eating disorder. I only started to like entangle, disentangle those things when I started realizing that I was autistic. So it's still a journey in progress, I guess. Yeah. But um, from what I understand, my, my level of self-awareness today allows me to draw um, conclusions about the links between sensory processing, so that means introspection, mixed perception, masking, and executive functioning. I think that those three factors are the main factors in my experience of an eating disorder, much more than um, like weight, weight stigma and uh, body image, as it might be for others, but it's it's not for me. And what I understand is that it's not necessarily body image is not necessarily a big factor in the eating disorder experiences of, of many neurodivergent people, especially yep, same people. here. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So, for example, um, hyper focus or special interests when you're going down rabbit holes one after the other, and you don't think much about eating, you forget to eat. So when you go out of that like hyper focus focus mode mm -hmm. you, you you binge you can binge eat because you haven't yeah. eaten like six seven eight nine hours whatever your hyper focus was lasting for and then your body is like, like ravening anger and you cannot control it so you binge eat and then yeah you, you feel you feel shame you feel guilt whatever you don't feel good about yourself and then you go into a bit of restriction and you know it's it's it slowly starts as a cycle, vicious cycle that can regenerate quite quickly if you don't pay yeah. attention or seek help soon enough. Right. Um, so as well as struggle with interception, so that's like sensing bodily signals from the inside, mm -hmm. such as hunger, thirst, or pain and things like that. So um, for example, I don't feel thirsty. So I, if I don't set alarms or reminders or prompts for myself, in good days without drinking and then i'm like oh i have a headache and i'm feeling irritated what the hell's going on and then i realize i yeah. didn't drink all day i'm like shit um and, and the yeah. same the same happens for um fullness so when you mm -hmm. have eaten enough your body sends signals to your brain and your brain tells you hey stop, just stop you know hungry anymore my brain doesn't do that <laughs> fun times um so my brain yeah. will let me eat until i feel like i'm gonna die <laughs> So, oh my gosh, um, I can, deeply resonate yeah. with that. And it's it's interesting because, I mean, I struggled Scary. with... It is. And I think especially when, you know, you've had like a maybe a different type of eating disorder. Um, like Because I had anorexia for over seven years. And for me, it was like, I never felt fullness, but like, I also never felt hunger. Like, and I, I never, I didn't eat enough because I didn't want to feel full. I had this fear of like fullness because I didn't yes, really know what it exactly, felt like. Yeah. Right. So I just 
underweight for so many years, but but now you know being recovered from anorexia and being recovered, I'd say I've recovered from from like all my eating disorders. I've just noticed that binging that you just brought up. I've noticed that that has been coming up a lot in my life, and I'm really realizing now like how like how strongly that is true for me that I don't feel fullness. Like I especially during times of stress. Um, and it's like the the food for me acts as as a form of numbing, you know, as I think for so many autistic people, we have this constant tornado of thoughts going in our mind. It's like it never ends. And I've realized for myself, like the only moment that I'm not thinking is when I'm eating. <laughs> um, and so like even yesterday, I ate and I ate two entire apple pies and I felt so sick afterwards, but it was like, I like almost blank out doing the eating because I'm like, I don't feel anything right now. And I don't register how full yeah. I am until everything is exactly. gone. Um, so, yeah. So yeah. yeah, it's like your stomach is going to burst like, yeah. and you're just going to explode and, and literally, and I don't mean it in a triggering way or in a stigmatizing way for, for, for yeah. fat people. Right. But like as a person who has overeaten so much so that their bodies feel like it, yeah. it's literally going to die, it can be extremely scary regardless of weight status or anything. Yes. Um, it can be any weight and this can happen to you. It, it doesn't yeah. matter. It's just the experience of feeling like you're going to die because you ate too much that your body cannot cope with it. And so for me, I think that sense of like lack of safety, as, as you mentioned, it's like, yeah well, my body is not telling me the right things at the right time, so I don't feel safe within my own body. So yeah. the safest way to go about it is actually not to eat because then I don't feel like I'm going to die imminently because my stomach is feeling like it's going to burst. Right. That's why I was sick. Because, and, and, and then you, you've got the cycle of restricting and then your brain goes, but you know it's time to binge. And then you go okay. into binging. Then you, you, you feel like you're going to die and you feel unsafe and you feel scared. So you restrict them. And eventually you restrict all the way because you feel too scared. But yeah, so I think that interceptive awareness in that regards has played a big role in my eating disorder, my experience of Absolutely. eating unsafe around food or uncertainty around food. Yeah, I, I think that's a really important thing you also brought up about like people can binge eat or, you know, have disordered behaviors regardless of weight. Because what I often... Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm told when I share, like, I ate two apple pies or I, I ate all of this, like, I feel so sick is, oh, it's like, oh, you can have it, like, you're skinny, like, and I'm like, it isn't about my appearance or, like, the way I look, it's There's about, I don't, I don't want, yeah, it's like, I don't, this is not a healthy behavior around food, like, regardless of, of what weight you're in, because I'm sure that if mm. I was in a larger body and I'd say I ate two apple pies, it would be like, oh my gosh, you have no willpower, you have no self-control, right? Exactly. Um, whereas when, yeah. a, a, you know, um, someone who's in a societally acceptable thin body, like myself, not to mention I'm also white, <laughs> um, when you when yeah. you, when you you say like, oh, I ate this, it's like, oh, it's fine, because like, you're not gaining weight from it. It's like, yeah, so I, I just really love that you brought that up, because I think it's so important to emphasize that, you know, eating disorders can represent in any size body um and it's so important we break and that you can up. have a restrictive eating disorder even if you're not yeah, underweight exactly. or skinny or thin or whatever acceptable um, exactly sanitizing um, um yeah. tape identity you can you can have in society you can you can you can be having um i don't like the term bmi because i think it's it's pretty much bullshit and biased and sexist yeah. but anyway so yes. like, I think yeah it's, it's the the medical world is using it so let's use it so if somebody has a bmi that is over 25 which is important anyway but like 
um, they they are usually perceived as not being uh, having a restrictive eating disorder. Or if they do, then it's not bad enough. But right. you cannot really assess how bad an eating disorder is uh, mm-hmm. from the outside because it's a mental disorder. Um, and that's, that's I think it's also lots of medical professionals miss. Well, I think also. Interestingly, I think it's more than actually a mental disorder. I think it's also like a a nervous a nervous system disorder in in a way. Um, when talk, coming back to that safety and like uh, the state of our nervous system, right? We have like the rest and digest mode, the fight or flight mode, but also like shutdown mode. Like I think an eating disorder is all, almost a, a way for us to manipulate this this state of of nervous system activation right um because when we are in this fight or flight mode you know constantly feeling threatened um when you don't eat you're in fact able to almost shift your body into either a state of of shutting down which basically happens when you are so malnourished and your organs literally start shutting down um and at the, yeah. and at the same time like a lot of my clients when we talk about you know this this idea of safety they say the eating disorder is the only thing that I feel I can rely on to feel safe, to feel mm-hmm. calm. And that's why, you know, when I see food or the idea of eating more food than I feel comfortable with, that's what puts me back into this fight or flight mode. Um, and I think for that reason, you know, because autistic people are inherently often either in a state of fight or flight mode or in a state of shutdown because we were overwhelmed. I feel like that's kind of where the eating disorder may come in as like, oh, this is something that I can trust will make me feel safe um and of course that ties back to the interception piece because we don't intrinsically feel that this lack of food or binging or whatever is going on we don't feel um we don't really know necessarily what our body needs and i think for me like like so many people my eating disorder started very very young i feel like i don't have a frame of reference for what a healthy amount of food is for me sometimes because it's like I only remember how I ate normally when I was a little child it's like obviously my needs are different now so I go through phases you know where I'll just be binging every single day it's like eat 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 like that last supper mentality but then I'll go two weeks with like barely any appetite and then I have to like set the alarms and you know eat eat on routine because I know I have to eat obviously but then Again, I'll just be binging for two weeks, and it's like it's like the spikiness that you talked about. I have exactly um, the same yeah. the same problem. It's like some sometimes I can bake for three, four, five days, and then yeah. I'm like, oh shit, yeah. uh, and then I I feel unsafe in right. my body because it's not telling me that you know, hello, you are eating beyond what you actually need, uh, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Every now and then, and I'm not saying that like. There is anything as as much as a, as far as a healthy for everybody. Like yeah. everybody has their own healthy, whatever they want to make out of what it means. I don't think that we should define what healthy means for other people. We can define Absolutely. it for who we are and yeah. for our lived experience. I define healthy as what is healthy for me, yes. uh, but it may not be healthy for somebody else, and somebody else is maybe healthy for them but not for me and you know i think that we need we need more flexibility around the understanding of healthy and and you know i think there is a lot of like weight stigma associated with what is healthy eating and things like that so that's why i try i try not to like emphasize too much on it because i think that by healthy eating we are insinuating that is the only way of 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 eating healthy but there are as many healthy ways of eating as there are human beings on this planet and yes. that's, that's the way i see it 
Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Health is subjective. I mean, my favorite example exactly, is, yeah. is I have this peanut butter example. I mean, I love peanut butter, Um, but like during my eating disorder, and I talk about this in my book, Rainbow Girls, I would only eat like the 100% all natural, non-GMO organic peanut butter, right? And I was like, that is so healthy. But then I say like, okay, maybe that can be quote unquote healthy in like, you know, our diet culture society. Um, But, but what about if you have a peanut allergy? <laughs> Like, it doesn't matter if the peanuts are grown in, like, the golden soils of paradise. Like, if you eat pe- eat, if you eat peanuts or peanut butter, you're going to die. Um, so, yeah, yeah that's always yeah, my favorite much. example because it just so clearly illustrates how subjective this term healthy really is. It's time to take a quick break from this episode to share a very exciting update, and that is my new online bookstore, LiveLabelFreeBooks.com. Ever since I published Rainbow Girl, I've been getting an increased number of messages from A, people asking if they can purchase the paperback version of my book in their country that doesn't have its own Amazon, and B, from people asking if there's just another way to purchase the book not via Amazon, because as we all know, Amazon is capitalism at its finest and doesn't support small businesses such as Live Label Free. Well, I'm beyond happy to share that the answer to both questions is now yes. When you order my books directly through me, that is to say, through LiveLabelFreeBooks.com, not only are you skipping the middleman, which is Amazon, but you're supporting both me and local print companies. So, how exactly does this all work? Well, as a self-published author, I wanted my book to be available worldwide so everyone across the globe could order my books in their preferred format with affordable shipping costs. My new online store is connected to print companies all across the world, so what happens when you order my book is that the print company closest to you prints the book on demand and then ships it straight to your doorstep. Because the printing is happening at a location that's actually near you and not on the other side of the world, the shipping automatically becomes affordable. What's also great about my own store is that I now have way more flexibility in the book formatting. My cookbook Nourishing Neurodiversity is available as a paperback and hardcover on Amazon, but this can be quite frustrating in the kitchen because the book will continually shut if you don't hold it open. My cookbook is now available as a spiral-bound paperback on LiveLabelFreeBooks.com, which means you can open it to your selected recipe and then lay it down flat so you can actually see the ingredients and follow the instructions much more easily. On top of that, I also designed this updated version to have coded pages, which means if you were to accidentally spill something on the book, You don't have to freak out about it seeping into the page. And trust me, I know what that's like because it's happened to me on multiple occasions. (laughs) And then last but definitely not least, you can now also bundle and save books. What this means is that if you buy my Rainbow Cookbook Bundle, which consists of Rainbow Girl and Nourishing Neurodiversity, you can save 10% on your order. And this goes for both the paperback version as well as the ebook bundle. To grab your very own copies of either Rainbow Girl, Nourishing Neurodiversity, or bundle them both, obviously, just visit LiveLabelFreeBooks.com. And now, let's get back to today's episode. Do you have anything else you want to add to the interceptive awareness? 
no, I was moving on to extra reception. I was because I was just about to ask. Like, I'm I'm super curious because I've talked a lot about interoception on the podcast, but I don't think I've ever mentioned extraoceptive awareness. So I'd love for you to kind of share um, what that is and kind of what your experience is with that. So extraception is essentially um, related to external, as in extraception, external um, signals that we interpret in the brain so that can mean smell that can mean touch um mm-hmm. light lightness colors vision anything of that nature it's hearing as well so yeah it's varied um and i'm gonna see there is research showing that autistic people have usually a heightened sense um mm-hmm. so usually hypersensitive in one or more of those modalities um and that can affect behavior a lot especially goal-directed behaviors, um, which eating is one of them because you eat to nourish yourself. So it's a goal-directed behavior, the goal mm-hmm. being nourishing your body and sustaining yourself. And so because because autistic people have a tendency to be overwhelmed by those stimuli a lot, uh, it directs essentially how they eat and what they eat, such as food aversions. Um, however, I think that Something that is less talked about is how hyposensitivity in some modalities yeah. uh, can cause binge eating. Uh, yes. For example, if if you, <laughs> you feel understimulated and you really like something, really like a taste or a texture yeah. or whatever, well, your brain is going to be like, oh, I like that, but I feel understimulated. I, want more. I need something. I want more. Whatever. Yeah. So let, let me have that texture. Let me have that smell. Let me have that. And then I think that hypersensitivity in extraceptive awareness can lead to binge eating. So mm-hmm. I think that people usually see extraception as a means for restriction. Mm-hmm. However, extraceptive awareness influence on eating is way more complex and nuanced than we think. It impacts mm-hmm. um, eating behaviors at all levels, whether it's yeah. restriction uh, or binge eating. Mm-hmm. And for me, um, I mean, I have a lot of food aversions. Um, although I do not think that they have necessarily contributed to my eating disorder, they influence my eating behaviors. Um, I don't like certain fruits, especially if they're too acidic, such as um, oranges. Um, so orange juice I don't really like. Uh, yeah, Grapefruit, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Such such things or crispy stuff because when I eat something too crispy, then I can hear it in the brain. It, like oh, the crispiness goes into my brain and then it feels like my brain. I, I'm, I'm I don't know how to explain it. It's like my I can hear the crisp like the the, the chewing inside of my brain and it resonates. I know it's exactly like, what you mean. I don't know. <laughs> but but it's funny because I have this like I have actually the opposite of aversion. I have. <laughs> This is happening again. I have like a, a pull towards crispy, crunchy craving. Like, craving. Yeah, like for me, it's I cannot. Oh, I'm sure I can, but like I, for me, it's like a, a need, like a desire. Like when I eat a, a meal or a food or anything, there needs to be a crunch element to it. Like I cannot just eat a bowl of yogurt with like fruit. Like there needs to be granola or or crunchy toast or something on the side to like counteract the smoothness in a way um or yeah, yeah I'm, I'm just trying to think of like or like even if i'm having like a, a dinner like mashed potatoes and i don't know say like a, a burger and, and broccoli then i need to like put breadcrumbs on it or something because it's like there needs that's to be a crunchiness <laughs> yeah so that's so interesting how yeah, that's, you that's have sensory seeking 
Yeah. Yeah. So exoreception is connected to both sensory seeking and sensory avoiding. And mm -hmm. it, it can depend. Um, like each person has a different pattern and profile in terms of that. And so autistic people may be uh, overwhelmed by loud sounds and unable to eat in, in restaurants and things like that. Um, but at the same time, they can be a hyposensitive in, in other areas, which yeah. leads to, like you mentioned, crispiness and need for crispiness, whereas it's the opposite for me. I mean, we have lots in common and obviously we're both autistic, but we have like different sensory profiles mm -hmm. um, and that leads to different eating behaviors or feeding behaviors. And it's fascinating to realize how, how much sensory processing has an impact on, on our eating, right? Yeah, and some another example that I'm thinking of is I, I feel like there's this common misconception that autistic people only like really bland, flavorless foods. Whereas for me, and I think this comes back to the, the sensory seeking, and a lot of my clients actually have said, like, we, you know, put spices or on everything because we need like that extra stimulation. And I know a lot of autistic people who can tolerate really spicy hot foods because it's like they're threshold. I'm one of them. Yeah, like that's so funny because I'm the same. Like whenever we we go out to eat, or, you know, like the co the Indian curries, I'm, I'm like salt, super pepper, spicy, whatever, uh, and people are like yeah, and people are like, Are you crazy? And like I'm the kind of person who can like eat you know raw ginger and just like eat it, and people are like, what the fuck? Oh yeah, yeah, I can like I will eat just like pieces of ginger and just be fine, and I love it. Um, but it's like because our yeah. threshold for like it registering in our mouth is so high it's like we need <laughs> we need it yeah um the other factor that i think majorly contributed to my eating disorder and probably much more than sensory processing itself alone yeah. is masking mm -hmm. so i think that everyone has some kind of an understanding of what masking is in the context of autism by now because there's been quite a bit of research and community resources coming out about it um, but for me, it, I see it in the way that, you know, when you're autistic, you don't know about it. Um, you get, you get teased a lot, you get mocked, you get laughed at, you get all those like bad things thrown at you and you don't necessarily understand why mm -hmm. you, you feel like an alien. You feel like you don't belong anywhere and you try your best, um, and nothing works. Um, you get rejected day in, day out by teachers, by adults, by children, by people your age, by buddy. Um, you don't belong anywhere. And, you know, you don't have your place on this planet. And um, and so you try eventually, um, you try to be per the person that will be accepted by society, which obviously is not you. It's not your authentic self, mm -hmm. but it's a persona or an identity you build in order to protect yourself from feeling rejected and uh, bullying and discrimination at large mm -hmm. and so you build this mask that you put onto your artistic identity you put that neurotypical mask and eventually you 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 lose track of who you are you feel disconnected from yourself mm -hmm. and eventually you because of that as, as you grow up eventually you come across that culture which you know, it's everywhere in society today right that culture in the media, that culture in marketing and the clothes industry, even at school, eventually it will make uh -huh. its way up um, as you grow up as a kid. And so eventually you're like, yeah, I'm socially rejected. Nobody likes me. Um, I mean, I feel like an alien. I feel broken. I think something is broken with me. I'm wrong. Maybe if I lost some weight, 
I might be right again. And then, you know, if I'm thinner, maybe I'll be accepted. Maybe if I'm thinner, people are not going to reject me. I'm not going to be bullied. I'm going to be safe. Mm-hmm. And so being thin becomes associated to masking with being safe. Because society tells us that if you're thin, you're safe from bullying. You're safe from rejection because you're thin. Yay. Um, <laughs> so I feel that like masking was probably a big contributor. And I've, I'm not sure about it. I need to reflect some more about it. But some autistic people have come to their conclusions for their own perspectives that uh, the eating disorder actually was a form of masking. I don't see it that way for myself. That doesn't mean that they are not right for themselves. But I think for me, it's it's more that the eating disorder um, served that kind of identity, like nothingness that I was experiencing, such as that I lost myself to the mask. I didn't know who I was anymore. And then yeah. the eating disorder gave me the reassurance that, you know, yeah. I'm not a nobody. I'm somebody who's been. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I, I like that you brought that and up. And I have I... control. Like, yeah. yeah, I can't control people bullying me. I can't control my social awkwardness, uh, but I can control what I eat. Right. So I am somebody and I'm achieving something. Yeah, I, I think you brought up a really important point there of like how some people say like the masking was the sole reason for eating disorder. But I think as with everything, I don't think there's ever one sole reason. I truly believe exactly. that, you know, yeah. masking played a huge part in in the development of my eating disorder because I didn't know I was autistic, of course. So it was like, if I have this mask, I can just kind of shield myself from responsibility, from the world, from like these expectations that I feel like I can't meet ever, no matter what I do. So if I have the eating disorder, it's like, oh, I'll just say I have an eating disorder and people see that I'm sick. So I can't do these things. Um, And I think a huge difficulty for me about committing to recovery was this fear that I wouldn't be able to handle these responsibilities when I was healthy again. Um, But of course, as you talked about before, the interoception, the extraception, like our our childhood, you know, trauma, the state of our nervous system, safety, there's so many factors that that play into, you know, development of an eating disorder, whether you're autistic or not. so yeah, I, I really appreciate you you sharing all that. Um, I think there is so much more that we want to dive into, you know, the connection between autism and ADHD, executive functioning, um, preferences that may have been considered eating disorder behaviors, um, and in an effort to, you know, respect the autistic attention <laughs> um, as well as everyone's time. Um Lawrence, would you be open to doing a part two for the rest of this discussion? (laughs) Yeah, sure. That's fine. Okay, wonderful. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I think there's so much to discuss and um, you've already given so much value. I mean, I have genuinely just, I always enjoy talking to you. So I'm I'm already excited. Um, So yeah, thank you. Well, in the meantime, though, where where can everyone find you if they want to get in touch before (laughs) part two comes out? (laughs) Um, so I'm I'm essentially the chair of a not for profit organization, which is called Eating Disorders University Australia. Mm-hmm. All the board members, um, all the team, or all our team is neurodivergence. We all have lived experience of eating disorder, and our website is e d n u n e u. Sorry, I'm dyslexic. No, it's okay. It's okay um i'll i'll um, leave i'll leave the link in the show notes how about how about that 
yeah, it's better like that because otherwise, yeah, people are not going to register. Yeah, well, you you won't even believe what happened to me. This has nothing to do with dyslexia, but I think it's almost like this registration problem this morning. Yeah, I was not thinking. I was taking my morning supplements, my vitamins, and instead of taking my <laughs> multivitamin gummies, I take fucking melatonin. And like, oh, I had, yeah, I had, swall- <laughs> I had swallowed it, and I was like, oh. Holy fuck, I did not just do that. <laughs> um, and I don't know about the combination between that and like coffee right after. <laughs> but it was so weird because I was like, oh, like I'm fine now. But like I was like feeling all kinds of weird. But maybe it was just placebo effect. I don't know. But it was yeah. like in that yeah. moment where afterwards I was like, what the fuck just happened? Like I was completely out of it. <laughs> um, That's so- funny. I love it. And then I Googled, yeah. you know, has anyone ever taken melatonin before? And then I came on like a reddit thread and it was funny because someone else had said oh like the com- i did the complete opposite four nights ago um i took four i took my adderall at 10 p.m and i was like okay that's way worse actually is <laughs> taking the stimulant in in the nighttime um so yeah, yeah. if so how did that go did you sleep at all no because it was i did it it happened like two hours ago um <laughs> Oh no, the Adderall. It was, that wasn't me. That was someone else yeah. on like a random thread. Oh, I don't know. Okay. Um, but there were all these stories of people who, by accident, accidentally took either a stimulant or a melatonin at the wrong time. Um. So yeah, if mm-hmm. anyone listening to this has done that, you're not alone. <laughs> um. So, but yeah, thank you so much, yep. Lawrence, for sharing your story. Um, I'm already super excited to get into all the other topics um we wanted to talk about. Um, anyone listening, if you want to learn more about Lawrence, I'll leave the link um to her connections in the show notes. Um, and stay tuned for part two. All right, thanks, Lawrence. Bye, everyone. Thanks for having me. Bye. This podcast has been recorded by your host, Liv. This podcast has been edited by my small but mighty Liv Label Free team. And the beautiful song, One Foot in Front of the Other, that you were now listening to was written and recorded by my beautiful mom, Louise Alexandra. I am so grateful for my team and everyone who supports Live Label Free. Together, we are always stronger.